Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Before I introduce our speaker today, it's our tradition to go around the room and say our name. I'll go ahead and begin if I may. My name is Roy. I'm Greg. Anthony. Omar. Prasada Chitta. My name is Harley. Joanne. I'm Gary. <coughs> My name is Jerry. I'm AJ. My name is Oswaldo. My name is Mark. David. My name is Ray. I'm Jack. My name is David. My name is David. My name is Douglas. <laughs> Peter. My name is Tom. Risha. My name is Richard. Donald. My name is Alan. I'm Hal. My name is David. Jay. Great. Our speaker today is Daigon Gaither, who began Buddhist practice in 1995 in the Vipassana tradition and then began to study Zen in 2003 with Paul Hawaroshi. He received lay ordination in 2006 when he was given the name Daigon, or Great Vow. He received priest ordination in July of 2011. His work, practice, and free time include many hours devoted to community service in a variety of ways, including his work as one of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence and as a volunteer at the Zen and Hospice Project. He has spoken nationwide on a variety of issues and has sat on a number of boards and committees that serve community and social justice. Welcome, Dr. Good morning. It's always funny to sit here and listen to... Uh, I actually had somebody else write that because um, I'm not really great at talking about myself. And every time I hear it, I wonder, who is that guy? I also want to say uh, happy National Coming Out Day. Uh, I woke up this morning and I was thinking about um, where else in my life that I might need to come out um, and what other things would need to be come out about. And... Um, and I was talking to a friend of mine who pointed out that I like talking about myself far too much for there to be anything left to be secret. <laughs> so um, I'm going to start with a poem. Um, I'm sort of not certain that this goes with what I'm going to talk about today, but it was close. Uh, when I think of the patience I've had back in the dark, before I remember or knew it was night until the light came all at once. At the speed it was born to, with all the time in the world to fly through, not concerned about ever arriving, and then the gather of the first stars, unhurried in their flowering spaces, and far into the story. The planets cooling slowly, and the ages of rain, then the seas starting to bear memory the gaze of the first cell at its waking. How did this haste begin? This little time at any time, this reading by lightning, scarcely a word, this nothing, this heaven. Um, <clears throat> a couple weeks ago, I was sitting meditation and um, in Zen, we sit facing a wall. And at Zen Center, the walls are painted white. And about halfway through the period of meditation, first I want to say the really cool thing about meditation is, is if you do it consistently and for long enough, your mind will settle. And in that settling, insights will arise. That's what they tell us, right? That's what the sutras are all about. So I was sitting meditation, and this thought arose, which was, Shit, I'm just looking at this wall. And um, I, 
I thought it was a really interesting observation. <laughs> Partially because in Zen, that's kind of what you want to be doing, is just look at the wall. Um, I didn't see it that way, however, because I started to think about what am I doing here? What is it that this all means? Um, now, it might have something to do with uh, I just celebrated 10 years of Zen practice and 20 years of Buddhist practice. And I, I have a tendency towards anniversaries to start to think about how well am I doing? Um, which is a really interesting concept for a Buddhist monk to have. Um, so I was thinking about what am I doing here? And I started thinking about particularly something that's happening in my practice lately, which is I'm trying to practice with an idea of non-opposition. So what is it to live in the world in a non-oppositional way. Those of you who know me, I have a lot of opinions and I have a lot of ideas about how things should be in the world. I consider myself committed to anti-homophobic, anti-misogynistic, anti-racist work. And so how can I be all of those things and committed to social justice and not live in opposition? Because there are lots of people and there are lots of systems in place which engage in these ways. And then there's also all of the myriad ways in which people perceive practice and perceive me. And there are people in Zen Center and Zen practice who want to say, oh, you should practice in this way. And how do I go about operating in a world in such a way that I'm not arguing against something, that I'm not trying to prove you wrong. Which is really interesting, because when I first came to Zen, I, one of my first conversations with my teacher, I said to him, I want an A in Zen. And he said, well, let's start with an F and see how you do. <laughs> I said, you didn't get the script I sent you. That's not your answer. Um, I like to be right. And I like to think that there's this place called right. I like to think that there's this place called nirvana, or liberation, or enlightenment. And that if I do enough stuff, or if I do it right, I'll end up there. So if I zip meditation enough, my mind will settle, insights will arise, and I'll have some great experience. If I m manage my behavior in such a way that I uh, can go through my life truly living out my understanding of vow, then somehow I won't create any more suffering in the world. that if I can convince you about the systems of oppression, then I might actually be able to end racism, misogyny, homophobia, toxic masculinity, all of those things that affect my life. And what's happened in the last couple of weeks since I've had this insight about, oh shit, I'm just sitting here looking at this wall, is I started to think about all of the ways that I'm in opposition to the world. All of the ways that I, I'm trying to prove something to myself or someone else. I'm trying to win this thing. That's a really great ringtone. It's the high. Oh, that's even better. <laughs> um, so, 
I read, I, I was reading, and part of what happened uh, a few years, last year I was taking a class on uh, the creative power of Buddhist women. And in that class, we read a book called Women Living Zen by a person named Dr. Paula Arai. And in this book, she talks about, it's a book about the history and current status of Buddhist nuns in Japan. And in this book, she talks about the ways in which the Buddhist nuns changed their position to the relationship to the hierarchy of Soto Zen Buddhism in Japan. If you know anything about Soto Zen Buddhism, we really like hierarchy. And, um, and what was really struck me about these women was that they didn't go about trying to prove their position. What they did was <laughs> they opened a school, so they weren't allowed to go to the university that the men were going to, and that were, the men were required to graduate from in order to receive certain ranks and be allowed to do certain things and all of that stuff. So what they did was is they opened their own college, and they educated themselves, and they practiced their practice. It's not to say that they didn't go in and say, you guys are, need to recognize what we're doing here. They would show up at meetings with all the mucky mucks doing the things, and they would say, you need to recognize that we're well-educated, and here's how we're doing it. But at the same time, they weren't really invested in getting approval from the men. They were really just interested in their practice. How is it that I live my practice out in the world? At some point, the men eventually figured out that the women were actually really smart and better educated than they were, and that they spent more time in the training monasteries than the men did. That they also were keeping to the tradition in a, in a closer kind of way. And so they opened up all of the opportunities for women so much so that now there's some, uh, so they're getting rid of, in Japanese there's a uh, identifier for nuns called ni. So it would be, uh, you would be a, a onsui ni, which would mean a female monastic. So they're getting rid of that identifier. Some of the women are going, wait, no, don't do that. Because that's how we get erased. But this is the level to which the men start to see these women as really... And the women did not live or practice in opposition to the men. They were just doing what they were doing. And this sort of inspired me. So what I've been trying to do... The first, my first step was to try and notice all of the ways in which I use the word but in my daily conversations. Because when I do that, it means that I'm not agreeing with you. And if I'm not agreeing with you, I'm right. And if I'm right, then there's an I here that is right. See, that's the interesting thing about living in opposition. In order to do that, you have to create an I and a you and a them. And there's somebody who's wrong. And so I started to try and say and instead of but. It was a really interesting practice, and it still is. Like, I still am amazed at the places at which I say, but. My favorite word is, yes, but. <laughs> so on top of that, I started changing the way I think about things. So what if... Instead of being against something, I supported something else. So I'm involved in a lot of organizations right now that do a lot of uh, work uh, in Northern Ireland about uh, 
uh, anti-sectarian violence and the sort of divide between the Catholics and the Protestants, and I'm also doing a lot of anti-racist work here in the United States, which is a very interesting thing to say. I do anti-racist work when you're not when you're trying to live in non-opposition. My anti-racist work, as of late, has been to support people of color, to, to amplify their voices and to let them speak and just amplify that. So when they write things that are really interesting to me, I help disseminate that information. Instead of worrying so much about and being sort of against the, the toxic masculinity that I think is actually hurting the queer community and leading to an internalized sense of homophobia, I just let my Nelly self be my Nelly self. Um, my teacher has uh, taken to commenting on the various colors of my toenail polish. Right now they're silver. And he asked me one day, what's that about? And I said, it's a really lovely, lovely way to get somebody to massage my feet. I go and get a pedicure and they rub your feet. And at first I was just having them buff it. And then the, the lady was like, oh, you should try some colors. Um, and so I've been having a really ton of fun with these women playing, and they love it. They think it's funny. Um, and it's interesting to me, the people who notice and the people who don't, and the people who say something and the people who don't. So what are the ways that I'm living in opposition to the world? instead of just really doing what I do. Instead of just being me in the world and practicing the way I practice and, and trying to let go of this idea that there's a right and a wrong and a good and a bad. And this is actually what the Buddha was kind of pointing towards. Our propensity to create all of these dualities, all of these ways that we divide the world up into a lot of opinions about how it's supposed to be. And the interesting thing is, is as I start to try to shed away these opinions and as I engage in the world in such a way that they naturally drop away. Because I'm not actually even trying to get rid of the opinions because that's just another way of me saying, oh, my opinions are bad. But if I start to try and look at the way I am in the world and is that how I want to be in the world, and I start to just kind of let the focus be on how do I want to practice? What is my practice? What is it I have faith in and belief in? And to live that out in some kind of way, not just in thought, but in my activity. As I start to do that, what happens is, is these things fall away. These ideas... that I'm anti-something. The other really interesting thing is, is that my relationships with people have changed. Now, I'm of the opinion that most of our practice happens in relationship to other people. I think that it's really hard. It's really easy for me to be not anti-something when I'm by myself in my room, <coughs> although I have been known to argue with myself quite a bit. But really, I actually think I'm right most of the time, so I'm good. 
And I don't actually start to struggle until I get out in the world and I have to interact with the rest of y'all. But in this attempt to not be in opposition, what's happened is that my desire to live compassionately in the world is starting to actually appear in front of me. Not because I'm making some special effort, but because that's the natural result of not being in opposition to things. It's the natural result of my not creating a you that's separate from me. It's the natural result of focusing on just my practice and how is it that I want to be in this situation. It's easy for me to think that that this is the right way to practice. That this is somehow uh, what all of those old ancestors that I chant about every day, that's what they're talking about. But I don't know. The really great thing about this anti-opposition thing is that I'm starting to be a lot more comfortable going, eh, it's what I think. I'm a lot calmer. I tend to call people assholes less often, either out loud or quietly. I tend to um, not be so convinced, which allows for way more possibilities for you, for other people to be right, including the Christians who surround me and the other people in my life who are doing things that I find objectionable including all of the ways that the, the system and the systems that we have installed around us lead to oppression. I have my ideas about ways that we might be able to address those, but they're just my ideas. And for me, that's a lot easier for it to just be another idea than for it to be right. So, what do you think? Because <laughs> I think I'm out of time. Oh, no, you have plenty of time. Do you want really? yeah, I want to leave, I like to leave time for questions. Sure. So, um, <clears throat> And I'm certainly out of words. <laughs> so thank you all very much. Tom? Thank you, Daga, um, for such great, stirring up uh, great insights, I think, in all of us. Um, you know, I find the place where I most fall into this trap of being in opposition is on social media. <laughs> because, like, on Facebook, it's so easy to see something and then express disagreement, outrage, mm -hmm. share it, you know, like injustice and all that stuff. And I made a decision to like, try to just post positive things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I look at things like the Good News Network, where they always have these like, positive stories. But I still find myself, it's so easy to, um, you know, to want to affect change. Mm -hmm. And so what are we changing? Right. Right. And so I think it's a natural inclination. But, um, Wondering is how do we temper this? Because I'm sure you've dealt with this. I, I fall into this mode of if I'm posting everything positive, and it's just love and good, 
It's like, okay, Pollyanna, <laughs> what, where does this go? Okay, you feel good, and other people feel good. Okay, great. Um, but then wanting to do something, wanting to have an impact, wanting to, you know, so how do we, how do you balance this? How do you not go off one end, or I mean, is there a balance to be had, or how do you approach that? Social media is really interesting, partially because I have relationships with people that are built around us disagreeing and arguing. I also have a degree in philosophy, which teaches you how to argue, and I love that. Like, that was the whole reason I wanted that degree. Um, <laughs> you laugh, it's true. Uh, so, <clears throat> what I'm trying to do is see how it is that I communicate, though. So, effective change is not making somebody else wrong. It's not saying yes, but... It's, also, it's saying, yes, and there's also this other stuff. Not just to other people, to myself. Because see, when I think I'm right, it becomes very narrow. And all of the things that don't agree with what it is that I am trying to espouse as correct becomes superfluous. So can I find ways to expand my view? Can I look at it as, teach me something new? So one of the things I've been doing is, um, it, rather than posting, I've been posting other people's opinions that I agree with. But I've also been um, asking people to say more. So when somebody says something that I disagree with or something that I think is wrong, instead of going right into my argument, can I just ask them to explain that more? Say more about that. Help me understand where it is that you find yourself in this position. And part of that also comes from my desire to believe that we're all trying to do our best. We're all already enlightened. Not just the people who agree with me, but everybody. And so, how is this an enlightened response? So, you know, we had that school, we've had a number of school shootings in the last week, and um, I've been in conversation with people who really want to support gun ownership, um, which is problematic for me. <laughs> uh, and I've been trying to find out how it is that an enlightened, that can be an enlightened view. Instead of trying to defend myself, show me how this is an enlightened view. I haven't landed on how that's an enlightened view yet, but I'm still in conversation. I like that because that's genuine inquiry instead of asking a question that, you know, is a setup to make the person wrong. Right. Which is what a lot of us do. You know, we see a lot of it. That's the Socratic method. Yeah. Most of us are educated in that way. So yeah, uh, this guy over here. I can't tell me your name. Again. I'm David. Hi, David. What I struggle with is. Um, how do you know the truth of any situation? Because there seems like there's lots of causes and conditions you can't possibly know. Mm -hmm. There's you with your genetics and your culture and your upbringing and your, your stuff. And we often have strong opinions on, on big things that require lots of knowledge and people. And you see, like, even when you get in a fight with a friend who is somebody you know, new things come up. You mm -hmm. thought they were doing this and they were doing that. And so I always struggle with how do I really know? And then I'm kind of left with a little bit of a, a mushy opinion. Right. 
Ayo Yamaroshi, who is the current head of the uh, Nisoto, the training monastery for the Japanese nuns, says that you are the choices that you make. I don't know if there's ever a capital T truth. And if there is, I'm probably never going to land there. But can I just have an appropriate response to this moment? Can I make choices that help bring everybody closer to some kind of peace? Right? Now, it is easy to sort of turn them into some kind of vacuous, I don't really have an opinion about anything. But I don't think that that's what is being called for. What I think it's really about is, this is my opinion right now given the things that I know. But then being open to that changing, to not being locked into some sort of concrete idea that there's a capital T truth and that if everybody just got on board with this capital T, then we would all be good. Almost everything that I thought was true at some point in my life, I no longer hold to be true. I've gotten more information. Does that make sense? Yes, I'm wondering whether that dampers the strength of having an opinion from your experience of knowing from your history as I know from my history right. that things I, were gut, I was going to oh, <coughs> right or truthful mm -hmm. I now think differently I don't, I don't actually know I think that's an interesting experiment I know that I still have things that I believe to be true you know I really believe that there's systems in place in the United States that oppress black, brown, and yellow people. I believe that to be true, and I have yet to get information that shows me otherwise. I'm open to the possibility that there exists information that might prove that otherwise. Haven't seen it yet. I've done some investigation. Does that make my commitment to that truth any less powerful? No. But it's not locked in concrete. Just like my idea of who I am is empty of an inherent and, and it's not reified into a thing. I'm not a thing. Does that get closer? Yeah, yeah. But I also think experiment and see how that works for you and tell me about it. Yeah, and then over here. Tell me your name again. Ah, uh, David. David. It seems like I've been going through a lot of changes lately. <coughs> and um, your story rings true to me of what. I seem to be going through, you know, and here I am, my mid-60s, and I thought I came out like 40 years ago, and I'm still feeling like I'm completing that project, you know, and um, I was accused this week of entering into early Alzheimer's disease mm -hmm. by these friends of mine, because they said, you don't know right from wrong anymore. Mm -hmm. I was like, wow. Pretty big observation from people that I've known for 45 years. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I woke up this morning reading the New York Times. I realized I had a lot in common with the Tea Party. 
Mm-hmm. Now, I, I don't really know. No, it's like talking about the, the feeling of dis, disenchantment with the power structure, their feeling of alienation, being manipulated, not being listened to, taken for granted. A lot of that rings true for me. I, um, for me, I, I really feel uh, like at least I can go to some of, some of these groups that I'm involved in where I can actually explore new ways of experimenting with trying out different kinds of who it means to be David Cannon, you know. This is sort of a big deal because for, you know, for, for my family who I've lost touch with, for my friends who I think, who think I'm going into Alzheimer's disease, who, you know, for people who in the establishment who I feel like I've lost credibility with because I don't act the way I used to act. It's a pretty big deal for me to actually take a step to correct some of the misinformation that I've been dealing with all my life and trying to be more, have more integrity mm-hmm. in what I do. So um, I just appreciate what you're saying about your struggles because I, I, can t- I can totally appreciate that you're coming from a, from a place of integrity. I'm wanting to explore growing into <coughs> your truth or your, you know, or just continuing to grow into whatever it is you're growing into. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. The realization, my mother is a fundamentalist Christian, ultra-conservative person. And the realization that I had probably around the age of 35 that I was just like her. I felt about the world the same way that she did was devastating to me. Until I realized that my response to how I felt about the world, my response to all of those things was different than hers. But that fundamentally it's actually the same. It also it did a lot for us to be able to get along when I was just able to go, oh yeah, I'm, I'm just like you. <clears throat> I choose to respond to differently. But, so I think that that's really interesting to, to, to start to see the na- how the nature of my experience is similar to the nature of somebody else's experience. This guy and then that guy. Can you expand upon that? You said how you felt the same way, you saw things the same way she did, and you responded differently. Can you go explain a little bit about how that looked? I mean, especially with regard to racism, LGBT. Right. I think that, so um, I am fundamentally afraid of the world. There's something in my cosmic makeup, my karmic causes and conditions, that my default emotional state is fear and loneliness. It's just the nature of how it is. I can respond to that by isolating and shutting myself off from people and deciding that all people are horrible and the world's unsafe and I just need to control everything so that I can get it in line or I can respond to that by opening up to loneliness and to fear and to to sinking into that experience and finding out the nature of what it's like to be afraid sinking into the nature of what it's like to be lonely which then opens up the world to me helps me deepen my affinity to be out in the world. The systems of oppression 
incredibly oppressive. And I see that, and I see the suffering, and I can, I can use that as an excuse to say, oh, the whole fucking thing needs to, pardon my language, the whole thing needs to just be tossed away. Or I can sink into what is it to be heartbroken about the way that we treat each other? What is it to be heartbroken about the fact that people are still piped into these channels that we can't seem as a society to escape from? Does that... So it sounds like you're saying, for example, if someone is uh, xenophobic, mm -hmm. one response is to shut out other people and other experiences uh, that, that would bring them into that sphere of showing that they're xenophobic, mm -hmm. and the opposite would be, oh, well, this is how I'm feeling, so maybe I should try to experience what it is to interact mm -hmm. with different types of people. Right, exactly. But your, your action in, in that regard is based on having the same fear that the other person has. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you very much for your talk. Um, I, I especially like the story about the nuns. I lived in Japan for three years, teaching English there, and um, I saw how women are, are, even today, in a society that is so uh, technically advanced, it, they are the highest educated society in the world, mm -hmm. they, are, they have the highest literacy rate in the world, yet um, women are not, uh, when I lived there, women um, in, in uh, corporations would never be promoted because they're just taken for granted that they will eventually get married, have kids, and quit. So you never see women in, in, in any executive positions, right, in Japan. And I think it comes from the society where, um, I thought it was really funny, where one of the um, uh, marriage proposals a man would give to a Japanese woman is, will you walk five paces behind me for the rest of our, our lives? Uh -huh. Because women would walk behind the men for so, many, for so long, they would never walk next to the man. And my Japanese boyfriend, his father proposed to his mother by saying, and which is another common proposal, was, will you wash my underwear for the rest of my life? Mm -hmm. so, um, uh, so I think the idea of the nuns not competing, mm -hmm. but just going off and, and having their own college and teaching and just proving themselves by their actions, but not competing with the men, is the best added way for them to have taken that approach. Mm -hmm. So I respect that. But um, what I wanted to, to ask you about was, um, you know, you talked about how, uh, you know, I don't, I don't watch the news. I can't watch the news anymore. It's too exciting. You know, I, just, I don't, I don't even have the television. But I get a lot of things from, from on my Facebook. So, <laughs> and people send me a lot of stuff. And, um, and, you know, so I see a lot of stuff, especially now there's an election, you know, coming up, because there's an election, and you see a lot of stuff. And I'm just flabbergasted by some of the stuff that, that I read. I, I'm just like, how can anyone be following people who say this shit? I mean, how can anyone, mm -hmm. you know? And then we have this woman, I'm not going to say her name, but we all know who she is. You know, the one who wouldn't give out the, the marriage licenses mm -hmm. because you know, of her religious beliefs. Yeah, the bitch, excuse me, has been married and divorced four times. Mm -hmm. Now, how selective is it that she would not, she, she would say about how she, she is honoring the, the, you know, marriage when she's been divorced four times? In the Bible, it says the bitch would be stoned. Mm -hmm. All right? So how many selective they are, you know, to be picking out what they want? Mm -hmm. On it. So my problem is the hypocrisy, mm -hmm. and I really, really have a problem with it mm -hmm. because I grew up in a very fundamentalist Christian family, mm -hmm. you know, and um, other people have heard my story. And my mother was the, was divorced when she kicked my ass out for being queer, mm -hmm. you know, and stuff like that. So I was like, the hypocrisy of it is just, I, I, I mean, it's jaw dropping for me. I don't, it unnerves me, you know. I'm, I, sometimes I just can't read any more about it. So uh, my question is, how do you deal with that? You have two minutes. First, I want to say. First, I want to say um, the really interesting thing about. Um, what the women did in Japan and what I've seen about Buddhist women in throughout history. And actually, almost all of the women that I, that I really respect and all of the people <laughs> I really respect, what's really interesting to me is that you, you can see how it is that their lived experience is not necessarily the way that people are talking about them. So the lived experience of these women in Japan is not one of oppression, and yet they acknowledge that oppression exists. 
I think, and the same thing with with these people is, can I can I have my lived experience while still acknowledging that this other stuff is going on? My lived experience doesn't have to be one of oppression just because I live in an oppressive society. My lived experience can be one of liberation. And I, it's up to me to figure out how to get there. How I try to get there is to look at all of the ways that I'm living in, in I'm living out my oppression. I'm living, like, any time that I, I let myself get completely immersed in what those people are doing to me, or to my people, or to my friends, I'm living out their story and not mine. I, I can only live out my own lived experience. And that happens regardless of what people are saying about me, or my friends, or my community, or my people. And that's liberation. When I can live out my experience without it being overrun by somebody else's, what somebody else is saying about my experience. Doesn't mean I don't get angry, but I don't, I'm not dragged around by the anger. Doesn't mean I don't get afraid, I'm just not dragged around by my fear. I'm not dragged around by Kim, De Kim Davis, I just don't care. I don't care enough to let her ruin my life. <laughs> you know? I don't care enough to fight with my mother. I just walk away. My lived experience is my lived experience. Who decides what your lived experience is? I saw a question like that. And, and then we have to go, I think, right? Uh, yeah, this, this will give a lot of final okay. At a memorial service yesterday, I heard a little story that seems to be an example of this non-opposition. Uh. A straight teenager in North Dakota appealed to his gay uncle in San Francisco for a contribution to an organization the teenager was involved with. The uncle in San Francisco did a little investigation, found out this organization was Christians and sort of a homophobic organization. <coughs> Well, he thought for a little bit, and then he gave a contribution to his nephew and said, um, this is not in support of your organization. I don't believe in it, but I believe in you. And it was this man, now several years later, uh, who told that story at the memorial service for his gay uncle. Mm. He had changed. Now, many other things were going on, I'm sure, but uh, uh, that... Yeah, you know, how do you do things like that? Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't come naturally. Right. Me anyway. Yeah, and that's exactly right. How do you do that? And can I, can I explore that? Can I explore? How do I do that? Just ask that, to, to just ask that question, you know? And what a beautiful example of love that is for this guy to just say, I don't believe in that organization, but I believe in you. Like, ah, uh, yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Thank you very much. And thank you all very much. Thank you, Diana. So we have time for announcements now. I have a couple that I want to do. Uh, the first one is Donna, which is the Hollywood for Generosity. Um, we'll be passing a Donna Bowl around our host today, David, and uh, the suggested donation is $10, uh, but of course anything that you can give is greatly appreciated. It does go for the rent, for the newsletter, for our speakers, for the Larkin Street dinners, for mailers and all that, so it helps to keep our sangha vibrant and going. Uh, next week we do have, let's see, October 18th, there is a woman by the name of Laura Burgess coming to speak. I love her. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> Sorry. She's a lay and trusted Buddhist teacher in the Soto Zen tradition, lectures and leads retreats at different practice centers in Northern California. A teacher of children for 30 years, she trains other teachers to bring mindfulness practice into the elementary classroom. 
Laura co-founded the Sangha in Recovery program at Zen Center and has a particular interest in the intersection of Buddhism and recovery. She's the abiding teacher at the Lennox House Meditation Group in Oakland. So she'll be here next weekend. And next weekend as well, I found this flyer when I came here this morning, uh, is Sunday Streets in the Mission. Will you be posting it online? No, I'll I'll post it okay, it looks like it's from 11 to 4 o'clock, but by 8 o'clock in the morning, they're going to be ticketing and doing their thing. Valencia Street will be closed from like 24th to 16th. Yeah. That's next weekend? That's next yeah. Sunday. And it's just Valencia Street? Mm -hmm. okay. But it's just Valencia Street. If you get here early enough, though, I find find I mean, you you, you uh, park like south of Mission, let's say down you know Shotwell Tree through there, you can usually pull it off. But it, it can get really sticky, so if you can walk or take part or the bus, it's, it'd be a lot easier for you. But it sounds like we've got a good speaker next week, so you might want to try to make it. Um, may we hear from our host today, please? Um, there's uh, fruit and snacks, so please help yourself. Um, there's also tea, just leave your cups and soak your water and open them out. Uh, a number of us go to lunch afterwards when we have in front of the building. And I'll be coming around the down hall. Great, thank you. Are there any other announcements today? Okay, let's just stand for the dedication of the By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness, which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity, without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Nice thumbnails. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.